Welcome to the Abarta audio guide to the M6, a route through time. The M6 motorway from Kinnegad to Galway travels through counties Westmeath, Offaly, Roscommon and Galway. Archaeological investigations in advance of road construction have revealed a wealth of information about the past. This Abarta audio guide, produced in conjunction with the National Roads Authority, is an introduction to the story of this landscape. The motorway lies close to one of the most important routeways of ancient Ireland, on Schlee Moor, or the Great Way, which once traversed the country from east to west. And this guide travels through time, from when the earliest hunter-gatherers in the region made a camp near a tributary of the River Suck, through stories of grisly sacrifice in the Iron Age, to the monasteries of early medieval Ireland. Later, you will hear of the Norman invasion of Connacht in the 13th century and the bloody Cromwellian and Williamite wars that devastated this region in the 17th century. The first known people in Ireland date to about 8000 BC, in a period known as the Mesolithic, which means Middle Stone Age. The landscape then was very different from what we see today. Ireland was densely forested with pine, oak and elm trees. Hunter-gatherers lived semi-nomadic lifestyles and roamed over large territories in small bands of 20 or 30 people, camping close to rivers and coastlines. Evidence of the first people in our area was discovered in the later Mesolithic period, around 5500 BC, when a small band of hunter-gatherers camped on the edge of a bog pool at Ballynaclough in County Galway. They left behind a number of stone tools, including blades, scrapers, arrowheads and hammerstones. The site was a short distance from the River Suck, a major tributary of the Shannon, suggesting that these first people used the rivers as routeways through the densely forested landscape. Scientific analysis of fossilised plant pollen from peat bogs shows that around 3600 BC there was widespread woodland clearance in the region. This back-breaking work was carried out by some of Ireland's first farmers in the Neolithic or New Stone Age period. The climate was a little drier and warmer than it is now and ideal for cereal cultivation. The site of a Stone Age farmstead was discovered near Kilbegan at Mears Park Farms, with evidence for a structure with a hearth and other domestic debris. The flint tools on this site included knives, scrapers and an arrowhead. The Neolithic period in Ireland is best known for the monumental tombs of the Boyne Valley, like Newgrange, Nowth and Douth. Here in the low-lying plains of East Galway, Roscommon and Westmeath, the dead were treated differently. At Treenbawn, near New Inn in County Galway, a group of small burial pits was found on a low rise at the confluence of two streams. They contained only token fragments of cremated human bone rather than entire burials. Perhaps these bone fragments were intended to seed the earth with remains of the ancestors and make it fertile for future generations, or perhaps to symbolically lay claim to the territory. 
Later on, in the Bronze Age, this was still regarded as a special place for religious ritual. A large circular wooden enclosure was built next to the ancient Neolithic burial ground, with a screen at the entrance to ensure that the ceremonies carried out in the interior could only be seen by the initiated. Metalworking began in Ireland around 2500 BC. Our earliest known copper mines are at Mount Gabriel in County Cork and Ross's Island in County Kerry. As metalworkers became more sophisticated, copper was mixed with tin to produce bronze, a much harder metal. The first smiths made weapons, buckets and ornaments. Axe heads were especially common. The Bronze Age has also been called Ireland's first golden age because of the number of gold artefacts produced. Most of these were personal ornaments, including decorated and twisted neck collars, armlets and rings. The first evidence for early mining in the region crossed by the M6 was discovered at Treenbawn in County Galway. Here, Early Bronze Age miners dug a large circular pit through layers of bedrock to expose a seam of the lead-bearing ore called galena at a depth of about two metres. Afterwards, they closed the pit with the ritual burial of cremated human bones in a stone-lined grave known as a kist burial. Cremation was the most common way of treating the dead in prehistoric Ireland. And Newford, near Athenryan County, Galway, archaeologists discovered a Bronze Age funeral pyre. The pyre was built over a large pit. As the wooden fuel and body were burned, the remains collapsed into the pit, leaving only white fragments of human bone in a layer of black charcoal. A Bronze Age cremation cemetery was also discovered at Cappy Donnell Big, west of Kilbegan in County Offaly. This burial ground was used intermittently over an extraordinarily long time and was still in use in the early medieval period. The most commonly found archaeological sites in Ireland also date to the Bronze Age. These are the mounds of heat-shattered stone and charcoal known as the Fulloctifia. Examples were found throughout the M6 route at these sites, hot stones were used to boil water in shallow pits or woodline troughs. The water could have been used for cooking, bathing, tanning leather, dyeing textiles or brewing beer. Nobody knows with any certainty. Because hot water can be useful in many different ways, some archaeologists call these burnt mound sites the kitchen sinks of the Bronze Age. A Bronze Age settlement site was found at Craigan Lower near Athlone in County Westmeath. Here there were post holes for a rectangular house measuring 5 metres by 3 metres. There were pottery fragments, pieces of worked bone and many pieces of chipstone made with chert, a stone similar to flint. Analysis of the chipstone shows that at least two people worked to create stone tools, one skilled and one less able. Perhaps they were an adult patiently teaching a youngster the skills of tool-making. The population of Ireland seems to have increased rapidly in the Bronze Age. 
By the end of the period, around 1000 BC, pollen evidence shows that the landscape was more open with extensive livestock farming and some tillage. Large hilltop enclosures, like the one discovered at Rahali County, Galway, suggest the beginnings of a structured hierarchical society based on central chiefdoms in tribal territories. Rahali is one of Ireland's largest hill forts with commanding views over the landscape. It has a series of concentric ditches and banks with an overall diameter of 450 metres. There is evidence for ritual feasting at the hill fort, but no evidence that it was permanently occupied or defended. Probably it was the site of public assemblies on special days for religious festivals, markets, fairs or the inauguration of new chiefs. The Hill of Ishnock is another well-known hill fort located close to the M6 in County Westmeath. With the increase in population and the emergence of tribal territories, there was also an increase in conflict. This can be seen in the dramatic increase in the number of swords, rapiers, spearheads and axes produced in the Late Bronze Age. These weapons are often discovered together in hordes, like the exceptional Dowerous Horde found near Burr in County Offaly. The swords, spearheads, axes, knives, razors, cauldrons, buckets and horns from this hoard can be seen in the National Museum of Ireland in Dublin. The population increase that began in the Bronze Age seems to have ended abruptly in the Late Iron Age, around AD 200 to 400. Environmental evidence shows that tree cover regenerated on what had been farmland with cleared fields, returning to hazel scrub and eventually to mature deciduous forest. This decline may have been caused by disease, famine or war. It gave rise to an unsettled period when human sacrifice is clearly seen for the first time in the Irish archaeological record. Old Crohan Man was discovered south of the M6 near Crohan in County Offaly. This is one of several so-called bog bodies found over the years in peat bogs in the Irish Midlands. Only his arms and torso were recovered. They indicate that he was a very tall man and the condition of his hands suggests a high-status individual who performed no manual work. He was naked when killed, apart from a plaited leather band around his left arm. Withy ropes were passed through his arms to tie him down. His nipples were sliced, he was stabbed in the chest, decapitated and severed below the torso. Clearly this was a ritual killing perhaps to appease the gods after a series of poor harvests, or to purge the world of a king who had failed in his sacred duty to make the land fertile and the people prosperous. The grisly but fascinating remains of Old Crohan Man form part of an exhibition on kingship and sacrifice at the National Museum of Ireland. But soon, Ireland would have a new religion to replace the old gods, with the coming of Christianity in around AD 400. The early medieval period, sometimes called the early Christian period, saw a strong recovery in population in Ireland. 
a new form of settlement enclosure became very common in our region from about AD 500, and many of these survive and are visible today. These ring forts or cashels consisted of a circular area surrounded by one or more ditches and earthen banks or by high, thick stone walls. They were essentially farmsteads. The defences protected the inhabitants and their livestock from raiders and wild animals. Wolves were still common at this time and raiders took slaves as well as cattle. Two big ring forts excavated near Ballinasloe at Macney and Loch Bown were high-status dwelling places for important families. They both contained the foundation trenches of simple roundhouses and stone-lined underground chambers known as souterrains. These were defensive features used for refuge during attacks, but would also have been effective refrigerators in a society where dairy products were especially important. The stone-built cashel at Carnmore West was another large, high-status enclosure, with a souterrain in the interior, cattle pens annexed to the exterior, and a group of corn-drying kilns nearby. There was little evidence for human occupation in some of the other excavated enclosures, and they may simply have been stockyards for cattle, pigs and sheep. The stone cashel discovered at Kula near Galway City was unusually large and contained only a single roundhouse, perhaps a herdsman's house. The cashel at Farina Blake near Athenry and another smaller ring fort in Loch Bown near Ballinasloe contained no buildings at all, either underground or overground. The everyday life of these farmsteads is glimpsed in the artefacts that were recovered. Spindle whorls and loom weights for textile manufacturing, iron knives, bone combs and pins, and the waste products of metalworking like iron slag and fragments of the fired clay from the furnaces. The bone combs had very fine, closely set teeth, very similar to modern lice combs. It seems our medieval ancestors were anxious to avoid these unpleasant parasites. Quern stones for grinding wheat, barley and oats are also common finds at Ringfort and Cashel sites. But some larger estates, on land owned by monasteries for instance, ground their corn in simple mills. The remains of one of these early mills were found on the M6 route where it passed near an ancient church site at Kilbegley in County Roscommon, east of Ballinasloe. The mill was built with massive oak timbers. These were beautifully preserved beneath the peat that grew over the site when it was abandoned, so that Kilbegley is one of the finest preserved examples of an early medieval mill in all of Europe. It was built around AD 800, probably by the monks from a nearby church site. Historical records suggest that some of the grain was sent as tribute to the great monastery of St. Ciaran at Clonmacnoise, across the Shannon in County Offaly. The mill at Kilbegley shows that the Irish were familiar with Mediterranean technology. This is unsurprising, as Ireland has always been connected to Britain and the European mainland by the sea. But the contact was not always friendly. 
When the Romans withdrew from Britain in AD 410, some Irish tribes took advantage of the power vacuum that followed and invaded parts of Wales, founding colonies there. The Irish also raided British coastal settlements to capture slaves. It was during one of these raids that St. Patrick came to Ireland for the first time as a young boy. Legend says that Patrick escaped after several years and returned to his home in Britain. But he began to suffer strange dreams, instructing him to cross the Irish Sea again, to convert the pagan Irish to Christianity. He did return to Ireland, and by converting high-born kings and nobles, he ultimately converted the common people too. However, historical records show that Patrick was not the first Christian missionary in Ireland. A bishop known as Palladius came to Ireland some decades before Patrick and was active in the southern part of the country, whereas Patrick had more influence in the northern half. Following the conversion, monasteries were founded throughout Ireland with grants of land and wealth from local kings. Some of the larger monasteries attracted surrounding settlements and became centres of trade and manufacturing, as well as pilgrimage and worship. Clonmacnoise in County Offaly was one of the biggest and best known of the early Irish monasteries. It was founded in the 6th century by St. Ciaran at an ancient crossroads where the Schlimur Routeway meets the mighty River Shannon. It became known as St. Ciaran's Shining City. You can find it now near Junction 8 on the M6 and it is well worth a visit. There are decorated high crosses and several early buildings, including the 10th century cathedral church, two round towers and the nearby nuns church. The monastery provided a royal burial ground for local kings and the earliest surviving building there is the saint's own tomb shrine. A lost monastic site was rediscovered at Clonfad in County Westmeath. The site was located on the N52 when this road was realigned to link with the new M6. An archaeological excavation recorded the great ditches that once surrounded the monastery. There was abundant evidence of industrial work, including corn-drying kilns and metal-working furnaces. Ironworking was practised there to a very high level of skill. Some of this evidence was used to produce a replica of the great iron bell that was used over 1,000 years ago to call the monks to prayer at intervals throughout their working day. The remains of the ordinary people in this period were found in cemeteries at Carrowkeel and Treenbawn in County Galway. These were both large earthwork enclosures, but they were neither monastic sites nor farmsteads. At each site there was some evidence for human occupation and only the eastern part of the enclosures was used for burials. But it is not clear how the remainder of the enclosure was used. Food debris, tools and metalworking debris were found, but there was no evidence for permanent buildings. At Carrow Keel, there were over 130 skeletons of men, women and children. 
Most of them were buried between the 7th and 12th centuries. At Trinbon, there were only 31 individuals, buried between the 7th and 13th centuries. They were buried in shallow grave pits, with their heads in the west, according to Christian tradition, even though neither enclosure was a consecrated church burial ground. Archaeologists call these sites cemetery settlements and believe that they were the family burial grounds of ordinary Christians at a time when only the monks and their rich patrons were buried in monastic cemeteries. Ireland was dramatically changed by the Norman invasion in the late 12th century. The Normans consolidated their new colony in Ireland with castles and walled towns throughout the south and east. The land they seized from the native Irish was divided by the Norman barons into rural manors for their loyal supporters who brought with them English, Welsh and Flemish settlers to work these new estates. These settlers, in turn, brought new methods of agriculture, like crop rotation and spring and winter sowing. Cattle, sheep and pigs were still important, but pollen evidence shows a tremendous increase in the cultivation of cereal crops at this time, transforming the Irish landscape. The heartland of the Norman colony was the Pale a heavily fortified zone in the east that included counties Meath, Kilkenny, Wexford, Kildare and Dublin. But the Normans were not content with their territories in the east and were soon planning to conquer the west also. In the early 13th century, the Gaelic Kingdom of Connacht was already weakened by a series of civil wars among the O'Connors, who were its native provincial overkings. In 1235, a Norman noble, Richard de Burgo, invaded Connacht with an army of 500 highly trained and well-equipped knights and all their foot soldiers and camp followers. The war was short and bloody. Immediately, the conquerors began to build castles and walled towns, as they had done in the south and east. Athenry in County Galway is the best example today. It is worth a visit to see the medieval walls and defensive ditches, the market cross, parish church and priory, and a splendid castle built by de Burgh's main supporter, Myler de Birmingham. The town of Loch Ray, also in County Galway, was founded by de Burgo as his own main seat. It lies along the north shore of a lake of the same name. The castle is long gone, but you can still trace the wet ditch that surrounded the town and see the ruins of the abbey he founded outside the walls. On the lake itself, there are several cranogues. These artificial islands were lake dwellings of the Irish, before they were driven from Loch Grey by de Burgo. Athenry is north of the M6 off Junction 17. Loch Grey is south of the motorway off Junction 16. But what about Galway City? About 100 years before the Norman invasion of Connacht, Turlock O'Connor built a fort called Dúnvun na near the mouth of the River Carib. 
When de Burgo captured this, he founded a fortified harbour settlement that would become the thriving port town of Galway. The merchant families of Galway grew rich and proud. In the 14th century, they petitioned the king for independence from the de Burgos. Their petition was granted and the families of these rich merchant burgesses, the Lynches, Blakes, Martins and others, became known ever afterwards as the tribes of Galway. Their houses were especially fine and were admired by visitors from Britain and Europe. Lynch's Castle is the best surviving example on Shop Street in the city centre. The foundations of Richard de Burgo's own house in Galway, the Hall of the Red Earl, are displayed in the courtyard of the Galway Civic Trust on Druid Lane. Part of the town wall can still be seen in the Air Square shopping mall. In the 1640s, England's civil war spilled over into Ireland with devastating and lasting consequences. The commander of the Parliamentarian forces and so-called Lord Protector of England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland was Oliver Cromwell. He landed in Ireland in 1649 at the head of 20,000 troops who were already veterans of the war in England. His aim was nothing short of total conquest. Control of Ireland had begun to slip from England's grasp after the Catholic Confederacy Rebellion in 1641. James Butler, the Duke of Ormond, had initially led the Crown forces against the Confederacy uprising. But when King Charles I was defeated and executed by the parliamentarians in England, the Duke allied himself with the Confederacy at the head of a new royalist coalition in Ireland. Their aim was to invade England with a combined army of exiled royalists and the Irish Confederacy troops, to defeat the parliamentarian forces and to restore the monarchy. But the Royalist army was no match for Cromwell's seasoned veterans. In September 1649, they breached the walls of Drogheda and stormed the town, slaughtering the garrison and over a thousand of the townspeople. He also stormed Wexford in a similar bloody attack. The ferocity of Cromwell's forces caused such consternation that some towns and cities surrendered rather than face a siege and its consequences. But some other towns, including Waterford, Limerick and Galway, only surrendered after a brave resistance. Cromwell's army soon moved westwards and he defeated the Irish at Malik on the Shannon in 1650. The remnants of the Confederacy army retreated to Galway and Limerick. The army was now under the command of the parliamentarian commander in Connacht, the notorious Sir Charles Coote. Coote marched on Galway in the autumn of 1651, but found the city too well fortified to risk an all-out assault. Instead, he blockaded the city until starvation and disease took their toll on the garrison. They surrendered in the spring of 1652. Limerick had fallen the year before. 
The capture of Galway effectively ended any organised resistance to Cromwell and his army. By now, the country was devastated by war, famine and disease. Many of the captured Irish royalists were shipped to the English colonies in North America and the West Indies to work as indentured labourers. But some old royalist families, who owned estates in the fertile south and east of Ireland, were transplanted into Connacht instead, where they were settled on smaller and less fertile land parcels. Cromwell also rewarded the demobbed Parliamentarian army with confiscated Irish land. Over 12,000 of his army veterans were settled in Ireland, where they were expected to act as a reserve militia in case of future rebellion. They included Colonel John Eyre, who founded Eyre's Court village in East Galway and gave his name to Eyre Square in Galway City. The Stuart monarchy was restored in 1660 when Charles II returned from exile to ascend his father's throne in London. But religious tensions between Catholic and Protestant persisted and erupted again almost 40 years later in 1689 when the next Stuart king, James II, was deposed by the Protestant faction in favour of a Dutch prince, William of Orange. Once again, an English war overspilled into Ireland in what became known as Cuga and Dori, or the War of the Two Kings. James was exiled to France at first, but came to Ireland hoping to muster an army of loyal Catholic supporters. He landed at Kinsale, on the south coast of Ireland, in March 1689, supported by 6,000 French troops. He marched to Dublin, where he was welcomed warmly. His army grew in size, and the Jacobites, as they became known, included a mix of his French soldiers, Irish Catholics and Protestant Royalists. They marched north and laid siege to Derry in April, until Williamite warships under the command of Marshal Frederick Schomburg broke the blockade in late July. William of Orange himself landed in the north at Carrickfergus with an army of nearly 40,000 troops in June 1690. He met the Jacobites under the command of James II at the River Boyne in County Meath in July. The Battle of the Boyne was the last time in Europe that two kings would lead their armies into the field. William proved the more able commander and won a decisive victory, though there were relatively few casualties. James fled to Dublin. The defeat destroyed his confidence in the possibility of military success in Ireland. He soon returned to France, where he would live out the rest of his days in exile. In Ireland, the Jacobite army fought on without their king. Like the Royalists a few decades before, they were pushed westwards. Athlone Castle on the Shannon now stood in the way of the Williamites, who aimed to keep up pressure on the retreating Jacobite forces. William's forces laid siege to Athlone in 1690, but they failed to break into the castle after facing strong resistance from the garrison. In 1691, they returned and began a furious bombardment of Athlone, with an estimated 60,000 cannonballs fired at the town. 
Under cover of the artillery, an elite band of 2,000 grenadiers crossed the Shannon and attacked the defenders from behind, seizing the ramparts on the western side of the town. This allowed the main body of the Williamite army to cross the river unopposed, as the defenders hastily abandoned their positions. You can find out more about the history of Athlone and its bloody siege at the Athlone Castle Visitor Centre. The most decisive battle of the war was fought at the village of Ockram in County Galway. 18,000 Jacobite soldiers under the command of a French general, the Marquis de Saint-Ruth, faced a force of 20,000 Williamites under the command of the Dutch general, Godert de Ginkel. Ockram was the bloodiest battle ever fought on Irish soil, with over 7,000 men killed. At first, the Jacobites successfully defended Kilcomedon Ridge against waves of Williamite assaults, inflicting heavy losses. But when the Marquis de Saint-Ruth was decapitated by a cannonball, confusion and panic spread among his officers. The cavalry on the left flank, under Colonel Henry Luttrell, abandoned the infantry. Soon that flank collapsed and the battle became a rout. By dusk, there were 7,000 dead on the field, mostly Jacobites. Archaeological investigations along the route of M6 near Ockram discovered some of the musket balls from the battle, as well as some of the base metal gun money that James II used to pay his troops when he ran out of bullion. You can learn more about Ireland's bloodiest battle at the visitor centre in Ockram village. And there are also roadside signs on the local roads at key places on the battlefield itself. William's victory in Ireland had far-reaching ramifications for Ireland and Britain. He enforced a series of penal laws that suppressed Catholics and Protestant dissenters and excluded them from public office and political life. His followers were rewarded with landed estates and titles. The century that followed is known as the period of the Protestant ascendancy. It saw the Irish landscape transformed. Great mansion houses were built within landscape parkland on the new landed estates. Developments in agriculture and a demand for cash crops for export led to a rise in tillage on land previously used mostly for grazing livestock. Farmland was enclosed extensively for the first time, forming the patchwork pattern of field walls and earth banks that still dominates the countryside today. Archaeological investigations on the M6 offer some insights into the world of the landed estates created by ascendancy families in the 18th and 19th centuries. An excavation at Deer Park in County Galway discovered the stable yard and kennels of Tally Ho Lodge. The lodge was built by the fox-hunting Purse family. It was the home for a while of the famous Galway Blazers Hunt. The excavations revealed foundations of buildings surrounding a cobbled yard and an abundance of well-gnawed animal bone, evidence of contented and well-fed hounds.
Not all the purses devoted themselves to blood sports, of course, as the most famous of them became Lady Augusta Gregory, a founder of the Abbey Theatre in Dublin. Elsewhere on the purse estates in County Galway, an excavation at Moyode recorded the more humble remains of a herd's cottage. A herdsman was the tenant responsible for the landlord's cattle and was allowed to keep his own cattle among them. The excavated remains show that the cottage was a solid, well-designed building with three rooms under a slated roof and a well-constructed fireplace. It was far more comfortable than the one-roomed bohons occupied by the rural tenantry, who lived further away from the great houses beyond the domain walls at the same time. It appears that a well-run domain in the early 1800s was an oasis of order and prosperity for the people who lived on the estate, whether landlord, herdsman or hound. At Rath Peak in County Roscommon, the remains of another herd's cottage were discovered. Again, this was a well-built, three-roomed structure with a cobbled yard. This cottage was on the lands of nearby Rath Peak House. This building is gone, but it leaves behind a dark story. It was the home of the Mad Lynches, famous for their quarrels, duels and inter-family strife. In one shocking episode, a beautiful daughter of the Lynches fell in love with a lowly ploughman on a neighbouring estate belonging to the Dillon family. The girl's brother, Owen Lynch, was a violent and brutal man. When he discovered his sister's illicit affair with the young ploughman, he went immediately to the neighbouring estate and shot her lover dead. The heartbroken girl was locked into an attic room of Rathpeak House and left to starve by her tyrannical parents. She endured this torture for several days before killing herself by continually banging her head against the wall. Shortly afterwards, her brother killed a fellow army officer in a duel and was transferred overseas by his regiment to avoid further scandal. After his parents' death, the house changed hands several times before falling into ruin. The Mad Lynches, the fox-hunting purses and the other big land-owning families were sustained in all their pleasures and cruelties by the sweat of the rural tenantry. The population grew dramatically in this period, from an estimated 1 million in 1650 to 8.5 million by 1845. This meant that labour was cheap and abundant. Arable land in Connacht was commonly worked, not by ploughing with draught animals, but by hiring gangs of labourers, men and women, who broke the ground with heavy, long-handled spades and mounded the soil into long, straight, broad ridges. The demand for agricultural tools was high, and most of these were made locally. A little building excavated on the banks of the Mihilin River in Kulala near Ockram was identified as a spade mill. Water diverted from the river powered a trip hammer, which was used to shape and finish spades and other agricultural tools. For many decades, agricultural labourers would continue to rove across Ireland and farther afield in search of work. But the intensive tillage regime that saw large gangs ploughing the field with spades came to an end after the Great Famine of the 1840s, 
when death, disease and mass emigration deprived the big landowners of their abundant supply of cheap labour. One of the major sites excavated on the route of the M6 was a lost medieval burial ground at Ballykilmore near Tyrrells Pass in County Westmeath. There were foundations of a ruined medieval church on the site and it is clear that the surrounding area was once consecrated for burials with the sanction of the clergy. But long after the burial ground was abandoned for formal burials in the medieval period, it was still being visited from time to time by heartbroken women and men who came to bury their unbaptized newborn babies. The practice of burying the infant dead in abandoned churchyards and other out-of-the-way places continued in rural Ireland until the 20th century. These infant burial grounds were known as killeens. They are especially common in the west of Ireland and reflect a time when it was forbidden by the church to bury unbaptized infants in a consecrated burial ground. The tiny skeletons of a number of these innocent dead were found by archaeologists working at Ballykilmore. Their remains were lifted with great care. They were reburied with a moving ceremony at Tyrrells Pass Cemetery in 2012. The burial place is marked today by a sculpture in carved bog oak. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the story of the M6, A Route Through Time. Gnairi on Boherlath. May the road rise to meet you. <laughs>